Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey there, and welcome to Thursday edition of Lynn Cullen Live. It's October 15th. What would that be? About 18, 19 days before uh, the election? Who's counting? I don't know. So, uh, relatively breaking news, just in case you hadn't heard. Um, Kamala Harris's uh, communications director has tested positive. Also, uh, a crew member of the plane that they've been flying on also tested positive. Uh, the campaign is canceling all all weekend events and obviously being extra special, careful. But that's the first positives we heard from inside the Biden-Harris uh, campaign. Um, also, I just happened to see, I'm just going to pass it on before I forget it, The Biden uh, campaign manager uh, is being quoted as saying that this race is closer than a lot of people think. Um, I think they're really worried about complacency. And uh, she went on to actually say it's a lot closer. Okay. So just passing that on, because uh, despite the fact that I suspect all of us think we're going to win, I how many times do we have to be uh, left in a, you know, in a stunned, freaked out state uh, when the tally finally comes in? And again, as I mentioned yesterday, do not forget that damn electoral college, that anti-democratic institution that the founding fathers had to stick in the Constitution uh, so that uh, the slave-owning states would uh, come aboard. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, was that what it shows that the Constitution – you know, written written in the 1700s, ladies and gentlemen, in the 1700s, uh, at a time when human beings might have been very much like they are today. The reality of how they lived and where they were living and uh, the speeds of communication and travel and all that kind of stuff was not the same. So if those same founding fathers were to meet today and draw up a constitution, it would be a hell of a lot different. And that there are people, these originalists, like a certain woman who is soon to be elevated to the Supreme Court for a lifetime tenure, uh, she, like Scalia, really seriously believe that they are to interpret cases brought before them today, 300 years later, <clears throat> and not quite 300 years, is it? <clears throat> I'm bad at math. Um, so, why would they – how could you possibly think? Even Thomas Jefferson had some marvelous remark that I can't, of course, remember about how, of course, the Constitution will have to change with the times. Otherwise, it, it would be like – trying to have a man put on the clothes he wore as a boy. It won't fit because things change. 
But you see these rock-ribbed conservatives, they want things <laughs> to be like they were in the 1700s when men were men, when women knew their place, when black folks knew their place, which was at the time, of course, to be property, to be owned. That anyone could think that a document, however wondrous in many, many of its parts, written during those times, could reasonably be applied to our lives and our laws now is to yearn for that. I mean, it's just like a willful, a willful refusal to acknowledge that so much is different. And that document would not in any way look like it looks. The Electoral College wouldn't be there. The definition of citizenry would be different. The Second Amendment, I can assure you, wouldn't be there. I don't know. So, yes, Amy Coney Merritt. Uh, on the 22nd, what is that? few days away. So next week, the Judiciary Committee is going to vote on her nomination. And obviously, they're going to pass on a favorable recommendation to the full Senate, where Mitch McConnell, that most loathsome of individuals, actually the handoff from one loathsome individual to the next, from uh, the head of the Judiciary Committee, Lindsey Graham, to Mitch McConnell, literally just weeks before the American people let our government know who they want to lead it. And it isn't going to be, I think, the guy who nominated this woman. And they're willing, with a millisecond left, they would put this through. I guess the way they figure it is they know they're toast right now. They suspect, I think, that the Senate will go Democratic, the entire Congress will, and maybe the White House. So I guess they've decided, what the hell? We got to hold one one part of this three-legged stool, even if we're doing it in the most really cynical and just, I, I, I don't – see, we couldn't – Democrats wouldn't do this because it's dishonorable. And we just can't do that, not as a part. We just can't. In part, it's why we're Democrats. We do respect democracy and the intent of the founders. I don't know what we're going to do because that court will be in place for the rest of my life, certainly. Because another thing the Republicans have done, the Democrats don't do, they always look for who's the best jurist. And so they pick people who are in their 60s, maybe even in their 70s. What's Merrick Garland, for God's sakes? He ain't no spring chicken. We pick on the base. We don't pick the youngest person we can find who we know to be a political animal with an ideology that they cannot get out of their heads, even when they're supposedly being judicial. I don't know. I'm uh, a little 
freaked about this court and I'm and I'm not certain that court packing is the way to proceed for us. I don't know about that, much like Biden. There is another way, and that is if we control the legislature, the Congress, then what we can do is make great change by passing really solid, good, constitutional laws, laws that even these cynical magicians cannot say are unconstitutional. An awful lot can be done if we really try to work within the system. You can, we can, if you have a Congress and a president who's going to sign those bills, there's a lot that can be done. Oh, yeah, lawsuits can go forward, but if they have really not a leg to stand on, well, I don't know. Now, that's a maybe a Pollyanna view. I don't know. I'm just suggesting it. Do I have a caller? I'm having trouble getting on my phone here. Uh, yeah, caller, go ahead, please. D.C. Hey, yeah. Mike from D.C. Hi, Mike. Hey, actually, I'm in Champaign, PA. My house still went through, and <laughs> I'm looking at the beautiful, beautiful view in Seven Springs, so. Oh, oh, that must be something. It yeah. is. Yeah, wonderful. Well, congratulations on the house sale and haven't heard from you in a while, so it's good to hear your voice. <laughs> I've been packing, among other things. Oh, God. Yeah, and I'm staying with Republican friends, so everyone who writes people off just because they were Republicans, um, I'm unwilling to do that. I'm unwilling to say, you disagree with me on this. Hence, you are dead to me. Um, there are some general rules about discussion, um, but I refuse to be put in a camp and say, I no longer want to have anything to do with you because you believe in something I don't believe in. Who are they voting for? And Trump. Oh, dear God in heaven. I'm surprised I didn't see a sign here. Um, but oh my. I was going to bite my tongue and not say anything. I mean, we've been friends for 40 years. It's, you know, I'm a man up and say, I love you too much to discuss this and move on and change the subject. And they're not my only Republican friends. I have a lot of Republican friends. And, um, you know, I'm not willing to end relationships over this guy. Wow. I think I would be. Isn't that something? And I have because to it seems to me, but in order to back him, it suggests to me a, a kind of self-interested selfishness. When you see what he's doing to divide the nation, how do you? How does a person of good character? I'm sorry, I won't argue this with you. That's okay. And part of how I, part of the reason I've come to this position is that during um, gay marriage debate, yeah. there are many people in my life, some of which are my family, have said, you don't deserve equal protection under the law. Mm-hmm. And I had to find some way to reconcile that with, I love these people, but not what they think. And they too had to reconcile it with, you know, I love this guy, but he's going to hell because of Simon, you know, whatever. So... I'm just not willing to do that. And if you saw the house I was staying in, the ski chalet. <laughs> well, your, of course, they're fucking might, Republicans. <laughs> you might change your mind. but No, I would kind. not. I'd burn it to the ground. <laughs> no, please don't. They just think they're really, really do. Oh, and, God. Okay, I'm sorry. That's okay. But that's not what I called. I called to talk about court packing. Yeah. Um, I think that is the right way to go. Okay. And because they've been court packing since Obama. I mean, that was what the whole Eric mm-hmm. Gard- or Gardner thing was about. Mm-hmm. Merrick Gardner. Mer- um, Merrick Garland. Pack. Yeah. Garland. Thank you. That's what that was all about. Yeah. And they, they withheld all of the federal um, judges. For, I know. For Obama. They've been packing. Right. They've been packing the courts. So why shouldn't we? Because we don't act like that. Right. But we should. 
if we want to have power, we need to do that too. The time where only half of the population or 60% of the population are gentlemen, in quotation marks, and the rest get to be jerks. Like the jerks you're staying with? Excuse me. I'm sorry. That's okay. Perhaps. Well, you just did that dichotomy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but I don't know how they, I don't know what they think about, you know, that a hundred federal judges were appointed and none of them were black. Almost um, all of them, too, are uh, male. Right. And I'd be shocked if there was a gay person in there, but maybe uh, one slipped through. I don't not know. Not the doubt, anyway. Yeah. Well, I guess. I don't know. Here is um, Milton Ascent Jefferson's quote, which is just such a great quote. I am not an advocate for frequent changes in laws and constitutions, but laws and constitutions must go hand in hand with the progress of the human mind. As that becomes more developed, more enlightened, as new discoveries are made, new truths discovered, and manners and opinions change with the change of circumstances, institutions must advance also to keep pace with the times. We might as well require a man to wear still the coat which fitted him when a boy as civilized society to remain ever under the regimen of their barbarous ancestors. Yeah, there it's it on is. The monument too. It's on the monument too, right as you walk in, and I can't believe yeah. anybody reads that and thinks other than you and I see it. But using that quote, right? If yeah. we use that quote, then we too have to change. The rules of the game have changed. It used to be, if you were the president, even if it was, you know, a, a year out, which was so much what Obama had, you suck, you took the you took the blow and you voted them in, unless they were crazy. Now that's not the rule anymore. The Republicans have changed the rule, and we're going to follow by the, the rules we used to have. We're never going to win this game if we don't adapt with the times. Well, I got news for you. Joe Biden, who, if we're right about things, will be president, is not inclined to uh, go that way. He's of the old school. He is a yeah. honorable man. But it's not his, it's not his vote. It's, it's, up to the, it's up to the House and the Senate. He yeah. Can, he can veto it, but I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, but mm-hmm. it's really not his call. It's not a dictatorship. He doesn't decide. Yeah. So... You know. Okay. I don't know. I'm I, hoping. I I don't know. So how long are you staying in uh, your uh, rich Republicans uh, gazebo, uh, excuse me, chalet, overlooking <laughs> the glorious woodlands? Uh, uh, you think I'm a sellout, don't you? Huh? A month. A month. A month. Aw. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you'll be there for election night. I know. I, they're not here. They have... Oh, they're not here. They have another home. Oh, of course so. they do. You mean they only have two? I'm sorry. That's okay. So um, they're not here. So it's not a. Are you there by yourself? Elf. Correct. Jeez. Well, why don't you invite some of us? Okay. Hey, have a bunch of Democrats come over and trash the place. <laughs> I saw a great. Um, I saw a great um, Biden campaign poster where it was a swirl of hair, and it said N-O-P-E. Yes, I just saw one today, too. Nope. It's a playoff of hope, right? Right. Yeah, I love it. That's the best part. The part, the swoosh. It's almost like a Nike swoosh um, of, of yellow, hideous hair, and under it, it says nope. I saw one on, uh, yeah, Beachwood Boulevard in front of a mansion. Um, yeah. Okay, well, and listen, you. And she is well, saving me. And, and I know that, again, she is saving me because I am literally homeless. And she you're said, homeless, Come I know. stay here. So, All right. That's very yeah. nice. But you could, yeah. you know, I don't know. I still would do little things. <laughs> If you're in there by yourself, oh, man, I don't know. Well, listen, um, 
it, now that we know you're there with nothing to do but enjoy the the comfort uh, that Republicans, uh, so many Republicans <laughs> have, um, I hope we'll hear from you more. You okay? Are. You are. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Bye. Bye-bye. Um, and, uh, yeah, thank you for this, Barbara. She writes that uh, Nicholas Kristoff has written this. I don't know if this is what he wrote, but yeah, he says originalism, you know, the thing that the Constitution is to be interpreted as written. Originalism is a euphemism for regressive social policies and a hidden intellectual return to white supremacy. Duh. The Constitution was written by privileged white Christian men in 1787. Slavery was legal. Only men with property could vote. Women were secondary to their husbands. There was no nation, so local militia were important for defense. There, you know, these originalists are, are literally, you're right. I mean, he's right. I said it too. Yearning, yearning for those times. When the right people had power. Dear God, Chris, tell me this isn't true what you're sending me. You know, Newsweek is a rag now, so I'm not sure I'm going to accept what they say. Newsweek says that the Republicans are refusing to remove their unofficial ballot drop boxes in California. Ah! Um, uh... California GOP spokesman said, we are going to continue this program. If they want to take us to court, we'll see them in court. They are vile. See, this is the kind of unbelievable, in-your-face corruption, hardball, and criminality that our opponents traffic in. It's like we, you know, they say, like, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Um, we are in a, a boxing ring with these guys, and we are we are playing by we are boxing with the uh, what's that guy? The uh, I had it in my head just a minute ago. You know the rules. Damn, it was in my head. It's why I started that old sentence. God, it's a bitch when you get old and your brain shrivels up like a friggin' prune. Uh, Queensbury, the Marcus of Queensbury rules, and they are operating like, uh, you know, the Taliban. Jesus. Bree writes, Judge Barrett said during the hearing she couldn't apply law to a hypothetical set of facts. <laughs> yes, she tells, She said a lot of things that make you laugh if it wasn't so frightening. Uh, Bree goes on, law school students must be overjoyed <laughs> to hear that hypotheticals are no longer a part of legal training. Meanwhile, a law student friend said that law school was literally mostly, of course, about hypotheticals. Oh, God. Yeah, you're given a bunch of hypotheticals. What would, yeah, what laws apply? How do you, Unbelievable. Um, I've got something, and I don't know if you saw this, and, 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 and allow me to read something to you. So if you call right now, you're going to sit for maybe about uh, four minutes, okay? I'm just telling you right now. This is so eloquent, and I wanted to cry when I read it because it's hard to argue with this. It is a letter written to Judge Amy Coney Barrett by people she knows, by faculty members of the University of Notre Dame. And they begin saying, congratulations, wow, unbelievable. Uh, we understand your confirmation is all but assured. And then they get to the heart of it. And here I'm just going to read, okay? That is why it is vital that you issue a public statement calling for a halt to your nomination process until after the November election. We ask you to take this unprecedented step for three reasons. First, voting for the next president is already 
underway. More than 7 million people, and it's much more than that because they wrote this uh, maybe three, four days ago, have already cast their ballots. Millions more are likely to vote before Election Day. The rushed nature of your nomination process, which you certainly recognize as an exercise in raw power, may effectively deprive the American people of a voice in selecting their next Supreme Court justice. You are not, of course, responsible for the anti-democratic machinations driving your nomination, nor are you complicit in the Republican hypocrisy of fast-tracking your nomination weeks before the same senators refused to grant Merrick Garland as much as a hearing a full year before the last election. However, you can refuse to be party to such maneuvers. We ask that you honor the democratic process and insist the hearings be put on hold until after the voters have made their choice. Following the election, your nomination would proceed or not in accordance with the wishes of the winning candidate. Secondly, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dying wish was that her seat on the court remain open until a new president was installed. At your nomination ceremony at the White House, you praise Justice Ginsburg as a woman of enormous talent and consequence, whose life of public service serves as an example to us all. Your nomination, just days after her death, was unseemly and a repudiation of her legacy. Given your admiration for Justice Ginsburg, we ask that you repair the injury to her memory by calling for a pause in the nomination until the next president is seated. And finally, your nomination comes at a treacherous moment in the United States. Our politics are consumed by polarization, mistrust, and fevered conspiracy theories. Our country is shaken by pandemic and economic suffering. There is violence in the streets of American cities. The politics of your nomination, as you surely understand, will further inflame our civic wounds, undermine confidence in the court, and deepen the divide among citizens, especially if you are seated by a Republican Senate weeks before then of a Democratic president and Congress. You have the opportunity to offer an alternative to all that by demanding that your nomination be suspended until after the election. We're asking a lot, we know. Should Vice President Biden be elected, your seat on the court will almost certainly be lost. That would be painful, surely. Yet there is much to be gained in risking your seat. You would earn the respect of fair-minded people everywhere. You would provide a model of civic selflessness. And you might well inspire Americans of different beliefs toward a renewed commitment to the common good. We wish you well and trust you will make the right decision for our nation. Isn't that a beautiful? I wonder if she read it. Uh, a friend of mine said, you know, the Democrats should have read it to her. Um, that um, when they, they tell her that she could, can you imagine, can you imagine if she would say, you know what, I have had a, uh, a come to Jesus moment. I, I, I've prayed on this and this isn't right. It's just not right. And so I'm asking for a uh, pause until after the, and do you know what just occurred to me? Yeah. The Republicans would say, are you effing kidding me? And they'd go right ahead, right? Even if she were to do that. And if she were to just, what she could do, I mean, of course, she won't do any of this. What she could do is literally withdraw her nomination um, at the last possible moment 
giving them next to no time to do somebody else and 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 in fact would have to do it during a, the lame duck session after Trump uh, may my words go to God's ear loses and do you know they'd still do it even if they knew that the uh, you know I'm sorry guys uh the uh the reality is I'm seeing, M- Margaret wrote, Republicans are repulsive. They are awful. They are just about power. And the power to protect this cramped view of what our country is, who matters, um, who the government should serve. It just makes me crazy. Whatever. Hey, you know, I was talking uh, the other day, was that with Susan? About, you know, too much testosterone. Um, and by the way, you know, steroids are, are you know, kind, they, they have, I, they're either full of it or testosterone and stuff. It's the same kind of thing. So, you know, uh, Trump on, te- on steroids is, is like, uh, may you, well, you saw what, what happened anyway. Um, this is from a, uh, something I heard yesterday. I was watching a video of a lecture by, uh, the daughter of, uh, of the rabbi who Father Joseph, are you following this, who Father Joseph uh, mentioned um, in an email to uh, to us, uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. And uh, his, his daughter went on in his, you know, followed his path and is a, a professor of, uh, you know, biblical, I'm not sure exactly what the professorship is. And it was a, she was speaking at a conference of uh, Christians, Jews, and Muslims that was uh, labeled, um, I think, religion and violence, or violence in religion, or whatever. I don't know what exactly. And in the course of this, of this uh, highly intellectual, uh, speech she gave, she talked about the um, derivation, the Latinate veri- uh, uh, birth uh, place of the word violence. And what's interesting is the word, and I don't know the Latin word, I'm sorry, that uh, gave rise to our word violence is also a word that gave rise to the word virility. She called them uh, cousins. So they one went off on one line, the other went off on the other. But whatever that Latin root is, it gave rise on one hand to our word violence and gave rise on the other for our word for manliness, for virility. I found that interesting. And also speaking of violence and virility, there's a big article that I refuse to read um, in the New York Times today about um, why so many Hispanic voters are for Trump. You know, stop and think about it. I mean, it's just like, what? And I'm not talking about Cuban Americans in Florida. No. I'm talking about people, uh, yeah, Hispanics. That's what I'm talking. And it's mostly Hispanic males, according to this article, which I didn't read. But you know why they like them? Because they, too. I don't know what the Spanish words are. They, too, clearly see 
his aggressiveness, his the manner, that obnoxious, revolting manner in which he carries himself, his words, his aggression, they see that as masculine. And they love it. So they, too, and it shows the how culture uh, and, and their culture celebrated that macho ideal that that, the more you sort of, you know, the more you, you put yourself forward as, um, as physically strong and not taking anything from anybody and this and that and the head of the house and the head of everything. And, yeah, the be-all and end-all, that is their sense of what it is to be a man. And all those, uh, you know, pasty, fat, white guys in America who also see in him, in that pasty, orange-haired, fat guy in the White House, they see in him virility. So make no mistake, the... Make no mistake, a lot of what's wrong, I will go back to it, is that men have created these cultures. Men have. Women have become incredibly strong and adept at living in these patriarchal cultures. Little Tony responding to the letter from the faculty at Notre Dame to Barrett says, she's compliant in all of it. Yeah, I agree. They gave her too much. You know, they said, you're not complicit. You're not. What they were saying is, hey, you didn't, you know, before all this was happening and in place before you were chosen. So we know you didn't do this. But the fact that she goes along with it, of course, makes her complicit. Uh, Little Tony says, what do conservatives stand for? Nothing that benefits me or the majority of the American public. Exactly. What? Okay. I'm getting some text I don't understand. All right. I am going to, if you don't mind, just sort of clear some things up here. And... um, You know what I keep forgetting to get to, and I got to do it now very quickly, because I intended to do it, I think, on Monday. And it just, you know how there's just, we're just overwhelmed by this, 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 so much stuff. Um, I do have to say that there is the funniest, there was the funniest endorsement, political endorsement in the Post-Gazette that I have ever seen the other day. It was a rather long endorsement for uh, the attorney general race in in Pennsylvania, which has uh, the incumbent, Josh Shapiro, uh, being challenged by uh, Pittsburgh attorney Heather Heidelbaugh. And the reason I have to say something about it is, though many of you know, Heather Heidelbaugh is uh, – a well-known nemesis of uh, of mine. Uh, she and I uh, were on opposite sides on that program on WQED on Friday nights, uh, in which we, you know, batted around uh, political topics. And she would drive me insane. And one night she drove me drove me right over the. That was it. I happened to be, for those of you who don't know, I said something to the effect of, you know, capitalism is not a moral construct. And she went berserk. And I can't, you know what? I can't even remember. She went berserk. The whole thing went off the rails. And um, I was so blown away by what she said, what she, it was, it was the last straw. I quit. 
not on the air, but that was it. I walked out and never came back. And then the show went off the air. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Heather, uh, Heather drove me almost out of my mind and out of WQED, um, which uh, actually I thank her for because I did not enjoy spending my Friday nights that way. But the endorsement is the funniest thing you'll ever read. They endorsed her. And they had no reason. And they couldn't even come up with a reason. They spent the whole editorial talking about Shapiro and actually, I thought, making a case for why you should vote for him. (laughs) They talked about all the stuff he's done and tried to find things that were, well, that was an overreach and that wasn't quite right. And, uh, you know, he slandered dead priests who can't uh, come and, uh, you know speak out and defend themselves. I mean, it was the craziest thing. And then all they had, I don't have it here, so I'm sorry. All I could, all they could think of to say about her was that, you know, uh, she's a lawyer and she's from here and she doesn't appear to be as uh, politically ambitious as uh, Shapiro, who clearly wants to go for, you know, farther. Um, It was the most contorted reach I've ever seen. And um, one of the things that will give me great pleasure is seeing how much he trounces her by. It's going to be something. Okie doke. Two things that I found of interest in today's New York Times, if I may share them with you. Uh, their lead story is uh, is is about how in the early days of the pandemic, while uh, we, the people, were being told by our government, that would be Trump, that we had nothing to worry about, that things were under control. At the very same time that these kinds of public statements were being made by Trump officials, these same people were saying quite a different thing to rich and powerful Wall Street types. In other words, they were warning them. First at a meeting at the Hoover Institution, which is a right-wing think tank now headed by Condoleezza Rice, on whose board such luminaries as Rupert Rupert Murdoch sit – And they went running over to the Hoover administration, uh, one of of Trump's economic uh, advisors. And he told them, you know, he was much more, well, we're not really sure. At the same time, the president was saying this is very much under control here, not to worry. So this is sort of in late February. And one guy who was at that meeting took notes. He was a hedge fund consultant. And he wrote up a little report and sent it off to a few people in the Wall Street world. And he let them know something's afoot here. You guys better start selling. The memos, here's according to the Times, the memos overarching message was that a devastating virus outbreak in the United States was increasingly likely to occur and that government officials were aware of that, much more aware than they were letting on publicly. Short everything was the reaction of this investor, meaning, you know, Uh, bet that the stock prices um, of very specific companies were going to come plummeting. The, The article goes into how these guys were briefed on certain days, and then the very next day, we, the people of America, were told something else. Some 
top administration officials were in you know third week in February were pre- predicting an impending disaster. On February 23rd, listen to this. On February 23rd, and that is the same date that this Hoover Institution uh, meeting took place with the White House guy telling them, uh, this looks like, uh, don't, don't listen to what Trump's saying, this doesn't look good. And on February 23rd, that same day, Peter Navarro, who is, you know, the president's economic advisor, he distributed a memo, not to you, not to me, predicting that the virus could affect as many as 100 million Americans and kill up to 2 million of us. And he also told people who got the memo that the country was totally unprepared. February 23rd, Trump's, one of Trump's chief aides tells the Wall Street folks that up to 2 million people could die at the very same time. And you know this, that we were being told, don't worry. We got this. Oh, guess who else is on the uh, the board or with the Hoover Institute? Dr. Scott Atlas, who is the guy who's pushing herd immunity now at the White House and is seen often on Fox News. The first time you or me got even a hint was February 25th when a woman at the CDC who was pilloried after she said it, I wonder if she's still there. The woman from the CDC, Dr. Nancy Massanier, said publicly, that the potential spread of the virus was uh, frightening. And she says, it's not so much a question of if this will happen, but rather more a question of exactly when this will happen. And then one of the guys who'd been down, who'd been warning uh, Wall Street, Cudlow, very shortly went on CNBC after she had said those things warning us. He said the virus would not be an economic tragedy. Warning Wall Street. The article goes on to say how one one guy in receipt of the memo, uh, you know, actually was stocking up on toilet paper. You want to know where the toilet paper went? Go to Wall Street. So there you have it. And not that that's a shock or a surprise, right? Certainly not. And then the other thing, and here again, we are so overwhelmed. This is something that I had intended, wanted to talk more about, but at the time, again, there was just so much stuff that things fall through the cracks. You never deal with it. I want to go back a little bit to uh, Portland, Oregon, when that Antifa guy uh, shot a Trump supporter on the streets, shot him dead, and then, you know, took off. He was on the run. And, um, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Michael Reinel, I'm going to say, might be nowhere near it. And then how that shooting happened, I'm, I can't remember when, but it wasn't too long later that he was gunned down by U.S. Marshals 
uh, outside, uh, I don't know if it was his home or wherever the hell he was staying, right? And that was reported, and I recall he was just mowed down, but it was recorded that it was a shootout and that he was shooting back. Well, um, New York Times reporting, this was an investigative piece, number of reporters working it. They say this. It doesn't look like that's what happened. There are tons of witnesses, 22 people. And they all say, with the exception of just one, so one out of the 22 doesn't say this, but 21 of the 22 people say these officers, that the car, these SUVs came roaring up as this guy walked out of his house. So there was a lookout who said he's coming out of his house, and then these SUVs come roaring up, and a number of the witnesses said, I thought, here's a guy, he was, he's a... um, He was standing there with his eight-year-old kid, and he was a U.S. Army medic, and he was watching his kid ride a bike. There were kids there in a parking lot, and and he said he watched, and and he said all of a sudden these SUVs came roaring in with such speed that he assumed it was some drug dealer uh, gunning down a foe. He, he, he said, I, I couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. And then he said, I respect cops to the utmost. But things were definitely in no way, shape, or form done properly. Because what all the witnesses say is these guys jumped out of those SUVs. Some, while it was hadn't completely stopped, they were jumping out. And one guy started firing at this guy immediately. So in other words, this was not an arrest. This was a federal execution. There was no due process here. The U.S. Marshals jumped out of those SUVs and unleashed a hail of bullets 37 rounds, some of which, by the way, went into houses and the, uh, I don't know, I think it was an apartment building. One traveled right through some guy's house. The dead guy had just gotten into his car and bang, these guys, the SUVs, came in, screeching to a halt right in front of his bumper. They jump out, and they assassinate him. What they told us is that he was an attempting, attempting to escape arrest. There was, no, there was no attempt to arrest him. The only thing they were there to do was kill him. There was no attempt to arrest And they said he had a firearm. Guess what? A check of his body showed he did have a a gun in his pocket. And yes, he did have a rifle in a case in his car. They never identified themselves. As this one, the same guy, Garrett Lewis, said, there was no get out of the car. There was no stop. There was no we're the cops. They just got out of the car and started shooting. And the news reports that we all saw afterwards were a bunch of Attorney General William Barr trumpeted the operation as a significant accomplishment. And so the U.S. Marshal 
service would not talk to any of the reporters working on this. They said they have said previously that they attempted to peacefully arrest this gentleman and that he had threatened their lives. Right. Oh, dear God in heaven. Well, you're welcome, Doug. Doug thanks me for the show. Uh, Barbara writes, Trump urged California Republicans to defy the state order in California to remove those uh, fake ballot drop boxes. Yeah, well... You got a crook in charge, um, you know, openly, openly breaking the law every other second. Um, yeah. Wow. And little Tony writes, uh, could there be a more hardworking attorney general than Josh Shapiro? I'm not aware of one. He really, he's impressive. He clearly is ambitious, too, but what the hell? He's impressive. There's a guy who has my respect. Little Tony says, I remember Heather, and not fondly. I bet she misses being on John McIntyre's show. Was she on his show a lot? Jesus. John, who's incapable of doing a show without a guest, would have her on every week. I enjoyed most of his weekly guests, but not her. We in Allegheny County know Heather, but those in other parts of the state don't. I hope she loses big time. Well, you know, listen, I he's known. And a lot of, I would assume, Catholic Republicans are going to be voting for him because of, of what he did, his uncovering of the uh, of the sexual abuse scandal. Of course, that will make other Catholics uh, vote against him, but they'd be voting against him anyway because those are also the Catholics that, you know, protect their church and will probably be voting Trump. Um, yeah, he's impressive. And I'm just waiting anxiously to get that same acknowledgement that many of you have gotten that my ballot... <laughs> Voting for him has been received. Okay, so I just want to um, end with the fact that um, now the health officials are telling us it sure as hell looks like we're heading into a second surge. So everything we experienced in March and April and May is a coming back, and probably coming back more so because we can't escape outdoors to be with each other. And they are saying now that this spread is not because of large events. Most of what they are seeing when they, you know, ask people who've tested positive do, it's family gatherings, friends. Or lax myself. A number of people have been in my home and not necessarily masked. And um, I think we're heading into something where we're going to have to really hunker back down if you want to get through this. Um, what's happening in my hometown of, of Green Bay is just horrific. Horrific. And because I know the people who had the biggest hospital there, I, my heart goes out to them. This was a hospital, by the way, that was lauded about five years ago, I think, in a New York Times editorial as a hospital that somehow in this corrupted, ridiculous uh, healthcare industry was somehow managing to serve its community and serve its patients in a humane 
way. And it was just a love letter to this hospital. My dad used to be on the board of it. It, I mean, it's where I was born. (laughs) They are overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. And I know why. It's because where I come from is Trump country. And those are all those big, big white guys who think wearing a mask is emasculating. I'm going to try to, I see our time is up. I'm going to try to do something here. I don't know if it'll work. Um, I don't remember who sent me this. I'm going to let you go, but playing a song. It, I hope you can understand the lyrics it, on the thing I have. Uh, the lyrics are, um, are you know, uh, subtitled. So I can see them, and I, I can never understand uh, lyrics myself. So I'm going to try to find it. I don't know if I will. I think it was – if I can figure out who sent it to me, then I can do it. Um, oh, yeah. Now I remember. Uh, But where is it? God damn it. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'll find it because I now remember who sent it. And she sent it not just to me. She sent it to Mrs. Rogers and Sally. Um, And if I can find it in my messages. um, Oh, shoot. All right. Well, it's a great piece, and my friend Kit was alerted to it uh, because of a here it is because of a piece that Susan Rice, uh, one of the women that Joe Biden was supposedly uh, thinking of having as his running mate, had written, and uh, she wrote this. Uh, Finishing up the dinner dishes one evening last week, I was jolted by a song on my teenage daughter's playlist. And she was listening to the radio edited version because the name and the name of the uh, song is Fuck 2020. And it's a group called Avenue Beat. And there's a lot. It, I, I loved it. I got a big kick out of it, but then I could understand it. So I'm going to say goodbye to you, um, but I'm going to play this. And we can, Amy, if you would, just let it play out. Um, um, the, I think the last line is, I am kind of done. Can we just get to 2021? And these are young people. God bless them. Okay, so I'm going to leave you with this. Fuck 2020. And um, I hope uh, I hope we all survive the weekend and I'll talk to you again on Monday. Okay. Let me get this going. Oh, shit.
Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.